Hey, good day to you and welcome to another Veterans to Success. And I've got Tim Artis with me today. And you know what? As per usual, uh, I'm going to let Tim reveal the facts about himself and then we'll tell the story and then you can be revealed on your true character, what you did, where you've been and where you're going to. So, hi, Tim. Let's jump straight into it. So, Tell me a bit about you before your military career. And first of all, yes, good to meet you. Thanks for your time. That's all right, Joe. I know it's been we've had a couple of times trying to get to this, and it's uh, great to finally be here that we've arranged it. So that's good. Uh, me before the military, um, I joined up when I was twenty-two um, and went did school, normal thing, A levels, normal for a lot of people. Uh, and then I was the first sort of member of my family to go to university. Um, I ran for a degree because I got sports science. And that's what people tell me. And I came back home and I didn't really know what to do. And so I did lots and lots of running beforehand. And I ended up joining the Air Force. But the reason is a bit strange because I was watching a program at home with my family and it was about the Royal Marines, Royal Marine Commando training. And oh, after watching that, I thought, actually, I fancy joining the military. And after watching a program on the Royal Marines Commando training, I decided to join the Royal Air Force. Now, it wasn't because it was too dangerous or too scary or anything like that. Pure and simple, since the age of 12, I'd always been a distance runner, cross-country runner. And the RAF was out and out at that time, the best team in the services. And so that was my mindset. I wanted wow, to join the Air Force because of their cross-country runners. Um, people like Steve Jones, Julian Gota and the like. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that, that was me. But, yeah, not normal, I would say, for many people, uh, not a lot of direction. And then thought, yeah. I want to do something um, slightly different, and that was a good thing to do. And that's interesting because a lot of the guys, uh, me included, actually, if I interviewed myself, I'd say, well, what did you join the military for? <laughs> and I suppose it was a case of, well, if I don't do that, what am I going to do? So maybe that was you as well. Yeah, I think so. There was... There was... It didn't. It definitely didn't feel as if there were huge amounts of opportunities for me after finishing the uh, university. And my uh, grandmother had been in the military in the RAF um, during the Second World War, so I had that link. And again, linking to what I knew about running, it therefore made sense. If if you could have great runners in the Air Force, then it couldn't be that bad. Yeah. And so it, it made sense, and that was yeah, I'll go for it. Oh, and your grandmother was in the was in the RAF during the war, and and women played a big big part actually in the RAF. Definitely, definitely, and um, she told me some stories. It was great about little things like um, she wasn't allowed to. So this is problem solving one hundred and one. Friday afternoon, she wasn't allowed to. Um, leave work until she cleared her desk. So she was a driver and also like a clerk. Um, so the problem solving for that was take all of your work, put it in the out tray and send it round on internal mail. And then you've cleared your desk. 
And then Monday morning, it'll be back with you. Ah, oh, that's a cunning plan, isn't it? Yeah, I like that. Mm. It is. I think I've tried that a few times myself. Too. Yeah, yeah, that was, that's a good top tip. That I gotta gotta remember that one. <laughs> so right, so you joined the RAF recruit as a recruit, a raw recruit. What happened, and where did you go to? Well, I joined up as an RAF policeman, and. I then spent a couple of years doing not really much else other than standing on the gate and doing security. I joined in the ranks, and even though I had a, it was very unusual at the time for somebody to join in the ranks that had a degree. So my plan was always I was going to commission. I went through the old Air Force way of going through station boards yeah. and tw- twice got told you're not even getting off station to go to Cranwell for selection. Um, so after my second fail at that, I basically took my put my two fingers up to them and took a slightly different tack, um, headed off and volunteered for special employment in Northern Ireland um, and ended up doing a couple of years over there before then um, re-attacking on the commissioning front. And then after six years in the ranks, ended up commissioning and became an intelligence officer. Ah, well done. Um, which some may say is a contradiction in terms military intelligence, but hey, we have got allegedly a, yes. Yeah, we we have joking aside. We have got some great uh, methods of intelligence and seeking information. So well done. So so because we're going to come on to that a little bit later on yeah. how you deal with failure. But you know, being turned turned down because, and I know what it's like to stag on, right? And so you're on the RAF police and you're stagging on on the gate and then you want to go for commission and you keep getting knocked back. What what that what does that feel like to you at the time? It was annoying. Um and the so I I look at the criteria and I, so if if you're going for something, you I want to know what I'm supposed to be aiming at whatever that is, whatever course that is. And so when I was looking at the criteria for getting off of station to go to Cranwell, basically it was you should only be knocked back if there is no hope whatsoever. And so I was pretty pissed off that they're saying there is no hope for this person. Whereas in fact, on reflection, it was probably more of they don't want to risk having somebody not look good going up from their station. So it's more about them than me. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that's the annoying bit, because if I'm going to fail, then let me fail. That's my view. Mm. But don't don't stop me trying and don't stop me having a go. Yeah, yeah. And that, that sort of, that's been my approach through most things. Um, if I'm going to screw it up or I'm, I'm going to not succeed... Uh, let at least let me find that out myself that I wasn't good enough for something instead of just telling me beforehand and making an assumption. Yeah, great point actually. And uh, so the knockbacks uh, you ignored really. So you took a different a different tack on things and you went for the intelligence in Northern Ireland. What year was that? That was back. It so I I changed tack around nineteen ninety seven nineteen ninety eight. And then I was in Northern Ireland, sort of 99, 2000. Still interesting um, times then, really. 
Yeah, yeah, the peace process um, on paper had happened. Yeah. We, uh, it, you'd recently, back in, it was May 98, you'd had the OMA bombing and the like, so things were still pretty tasty. Yeah. Um, and so lots of lots of uh, good and interesting work to sort of get involved mm. with and the like. Um, and then, yeah, and then after that, two years there, and it's that right, fresh head, different place. Let's go for it again. I felt the time was right and went through first time, no issues at all. Fabulous. And so how long were you at officer training? Uh, it was uh, six months. So went through that um, for the IOT, so the initial officer training. I know it's it was only half half the time, pretty much of uh, Santist. So a bit of a part-timer there, I guess. Um, but we did that. And then, yeah, after a couple of holds, as is with the Air Force between phase one and phase two training, out through intelligence training, and then ended up at the Air Warfare Centre in Lincolnshire, at RF Waddington. Ah, right, okay. And what were you, what was your role there, RF Waddington? Yeah, to start with, it was um, mixing between working on various regional desks or being a 24-7 intelligence watch officer and um, being in charge of the sort of UK's air response out of hours um, or just, yeah, looking at writing papers and threat assessments and the like from anything around the world. And and actually, again, that was an interesting time. Did you, what year were you there? Was that? So I started there 2003. Right. So we were we missed the sort of the main sort of stuff to do with the invasion of Iraq into uh yet yeah, we were or that we were I was actually on the training course when sort of Telic kicked off. Yeah. Um yet yeah, going from there you had Herrick building up and building up and building up. And I revisited back to um back to the air warfare center and different role later on as well uh, so very much operationally focused um on what we were doing yeah and when when did you finish there uh well i, I think i finished there in about 2005 headed off to be the um, air intelligence officer at headquarters 16 air assault brigade so back oh. with the uh, green so right. I had great, great fun there. And uh, the irony is I spent more time on aircraft when I was working with the Army than I ever did in the Air Force. I was going to say, <laughs> was that 16 out assault down down in... Uh... It's Colchester. It's Colchester. Yeah, because I went down to see uh, 16 out assault brigade and I did uh, a presentation to the guys just after they'd come back on a decompression, well, just before they went on decompression, and we were talking about leadership and how to relax and wind down. Because yeah, yeah. after you've done that sort of ferocity of of being in it at the sharp end, it gets quite stressful, doesn't it? Is it as an understatement, if you like? It, you 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 get used to things, and mm. I, I laugh about uh, one of the just a little sort of bit where I was in the office. And I'm phoning up um, RAF 
bases and oppos that I know in the Air Force because I want to try and get something done. And there's no answer to the call, to the phone call. And I'm wondering what's happening. And then I look up at the clock and it's sort of seven o'clock on a night time. I was like, ah, that'll be the reason nobody's around in the Air Force because they've all done one home and doing <laughs> doing the decent thing. But it's just the mindset you get into. Uh, yeah. And 16 Brigade was very much sort of that tempo and that, yeah, as you say, ferocity of doing things. But we had a really good um, sort of chief of staff who's ex-Hereford, going back to there at the time. And he always talked about whatever you do in barracks, you've got to make sure you've got extra capacity, you've got spare to be able to go to war. And so you, it is playing that long game. And whatever you do, you've got to make sure you're still operating within yourself, that you still that you can make that extra sort of leap forward when you do go to war. And that, that was useful to remember. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and what struck me as well, because I, I, uh, I declared out the rehabilitation centre to make room because it, it's it's got it's got multiple it's got theatre style seating where it goes up so they can look down, and I was just I, I just thought wow the experience and power I've got because there were like four hundred guys men and women yeah. and I was just thinking flipping it the 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 power here and some of the lads I mean I mean it's the same as when I joined or, or, well you were a bit older when you joined but I mean when eighteen. 18 years old, 19, and they'd just come back from there. And I thought, flipping it. And the, the PM was there as well on the day. So I can I can totally appreciate with you being at 16 Earth Assault that you would have been in a lot more aircraft during that time than you were when you were on your other postings. So what what sort of how did that equip you for life and for what goes on when there's a, a bit of an incident now, for instance? I think it's sort of, it probably builds. So from my time in Northern Ireland, then again, moving back to a green sort of tour, as I would class it with 16 Brigade, uh, it reminds you of the, I think the fundamentals of being able to work with people, not getting as phased about things, trying to accept that bluntly accept that shit's going to happen that's going to be outside of your control and getting then wound up about it is really not going to do anything other than reduce your capacity to do the actual job Mm. so take it on the chin whatever it is and move forward really um and I think that then that's one of the things that then sort of going from the operational side and uh, my last job in Air Forces in the regulars was at Cranwell, so teaching on initial officer training and trying to take that back to the officer cadets and trying to get them to be willing to experiment with learning about how to lead instead of trying to be this sort of every if we went out to sort of civvy street to the majority of civilians and you got them to draw a picture of somebody from the military it would be a stereotypical view it'd be a bloke i bet it mm. they'd be muscly they'd be this they'd be that 
And I wanted to try and get away from that and just have people being willing to learn how to lead and to find what works for them so that they, when they then hit the ground and, and sort of, yeah, and you're out free and you've got to do it for real, you're then comfortable in who you are instead mm-hmm. of, bam, I've just spent six months trying to be somebody else to pass the course and that now I don't actually know what to do with myself. Yeah. Who am I? And so it, it that's that's continued now to where I am at the moment about if you can get your own stuff squared away and know who you are, then you've got a great place to plan for what you're doing today and how you're going to move forward for however much in the future. And, th- and that's interesting because... I know I've worked with some blokes who were your stereotypical uh, six foot two, muscly, you know, built like the proverbial. And then I've worked with some guys and women as well, fellas and women. So when I say guys, it's uh, non-gender specific. And and to look at them, they haven't been much, but I tell you what, you you get them in their role, whether, whether it's been even running with a backpack Going up and down hills, you didn't think they could, but flipping it, did they shift like yeah. grass snakes? And, and and the same, I've worked with some great great guys, RAF, because on bomb disposal course where I was sharing, sharing a four-man room with the RAF, they did make me laugh, though, and he said, is this what you live in normally? I said, yeah, this this is a four-man room. He says, oh, it's not quite like what we're, we expect. And I thought, yeah. Okay, um, yeah, so that that's another story. Well, yeah. So that's interesting that you were helping them develop their character and realise, recognise who they were and are, rather than what they perceive to be. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I it, that, and that's uh that's something that is across both military and civilian. It's in any role mm. where with any. With any title we have, with any insignia, so the military are great, great again for having insignia. You've got the parabera, you've got the wings badge, yeah. you've got all your medals. People see that and automatically make a judgment on who you are and what you've done. Mm. And it, at the moment, it's so I I live up in the north of Scotland every year. I go to the Remembrance Day Parade. Yeah. And for a period of time, all of the guys and girls who were on parade, loads of medals. Now, for the last year or two, because the opportunities aren't there, there are less opportunities to get medals. And so the people are turning up with less medals. And I've caught myself looking at them and the initial thing is they haven't done much but then it's that right the second thought is okay herrick's closed down telic's closed down there just aren't the opportunities to get the operational medals so it's it you've got to try and step away from judging people just on things like that and when you see a title within civilian world if you see title with director or manager or senior leader or something like that we make these judgments on people 
And it's trying to step away from that, that we judge people on their actions and their behaviours and what they say rather than what they look like, what they wear, and any sort of title they've got. And that's, again, that's something that's sort of been big for me to try and be for myself to keep coming back to that. But also whenever I've been running courses and um, doing sort of training, yeah, always get people to be nosy and ask questions and get past that surface sort of view of people. That's very interesting, that, and thank you for that. Because that's while you were saying that, that's just got me thinking as well. You know, I believe that too much is, and too many judgments are made by people who really don't have the full information and. Had they had the information, they may have come to a different decision. So when I meet people now, doesn't matter the race, creed, anything, it's whether they're good people. Does that make sense? It doesn't. Every, all of us are just striving to live the best life that we can, aren't we? We we should be, and I, I yeah, I hope we are. It's it's one of the things that's yeah, very very important to me. Good, and I can say I can see that it comes through with your passion. So, I mean, you've already you've already touched on it. I wanna I wanna ask the question more directly to see whether you can actually give me some sort of definition on how you deal with failure. How I deal with failure, I think for me, I'm I, I'm I'm an introvert. And so that any of and it's something I've the whole behavior and how to engage and how to deal with things. It's it's a learned behavior for me that I know. And again, something that's very, very important to me is doing things to be in service to others. So that's the whole sort of whether it's servant leadership or the like, but being in service to others. And so I know that when I'm in particular roles, particularly when, when you're leading, you need to be able to engage. And so it's very much been a learned behavior to be able to, to speak in front of people, to be able to do all of this sort of stuff, to be able to support others and serve others in the way that they need to be supported. Yeah. So for me, that has led to a lot of self-reflection. That's my go-to place. So when I fail, it's a lot of self-reflection about what's happened, what's gone wrong, trying to work out a root cause of it, not about, and again, not falling into the trap, and sometimes I do, of blaming somebody. Yeah. So it's more it's more to be around what's gone, what's gone wrong, not who's gone wrong. Yeah. yeah. Because if, if we can keep away from the personal stuff, we've got more opportunity to learn. Mm. So if we can do that... I don't always do it, but that's that's that sort of the aim to try and go for. And then it's just again trying to work out how to change. Is it a simple thing, or is it a, is it a quick win? A change, right? I know exactly what I did there. Completely wrong. Let's fix that. Or is it a longer term process? Uh, so, I so I suppose that's about taking responsibility as well, isn't it? Really? Yeah, definitely, and. I, that's something 
that's something that's always been important for me and sort of as a leader and a manager, then if it's always been that if, if my team do something wrong, that's my responsibility. Right. right. If I do something wrong again, that's my responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's something personal to me. And I think that earns a lot of respect from your team members as well, because yeah, it, it's, it's a valid point. And, and okay, sometimes it might be a team member who's not done what you asked them to do, but that could be down to communication from you as a leader, or like me as a leader. When I say you, I mean collectively. Yeah, yeah, leaders. yeah. So it's great that you've got that ability to reflect inwardly to see, well, what could I have done better? Which is which is great, and 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 it's something that I wholeheartedly believe in. So, and. We're going to come on to transition from Civvy Street in a minute. Uh, I mean, you were obviously successful in in the military, in the RAF, and especially after getting knocked down twice uh, and saying you're not doing this, because not because you're not capable, but because you might fail, and if you fail, it'll look bad on us. I mean, I don't know, yeah. how terrible is that to hold back someone's progress? So congratulations on going forward and still achieving it. So when was the day after you've led this career, organising the intelligence and then working with 16 Earth Assault Brigade, which is, if you've ever been out, because you won't get into the camp, right? There's no chance security-wise. From the outside, you can see that it's a formidable machine, right? Being there on Intel and operate and being a part of that machine, right? Yeah. And then going and what what made you and then going to your next post and going back to Camwell and helping officer cadets. What what was the day that you woke up and thought about it? Enough? It was. I didn't wake up and sort of decide had enough. Uh, it's a combination of things, and again, just trying to work out what was the right thing at that time. Um, so I hadn't picked up the promotion. So I was um, flight lieutenant equivalent captain. A number of other factors were coming in. Um, I'd married and I was married to my wife, still am Ingrid. She was a serving RAF intelligence officer as well. I was coming up to my option point at Cranwell. And then I was either going to have to sign on to 55 or yeah. I was going to be leaving. And again, it's just a bit of logic and working through decisions based on what we wanted at that time, what was right. If I'd signed on, there was only two ways my pension really would have been better. So looking at the finance part, if I stayed to 55 or I died, I had no intention of doing either two, really. So it was a case of, okay, it makes more sense to leave at the option point. I extended for a year, um, which gave me a bit more breathing space. And then so I did 17 years then, and I left. The other part was I'd been married to Ingrid since 2007. And funnily enough, two intelligence officers working in the Air Force, you spend a lot of time apart. And yeah. we actually wanted to spend more time together. And so we had the we had a couple of co-locations, but we wanted to more permanently spend more time together. 
so we were choosing, I was going to leave, uh, had the option um, back in the sort of um, 75 um, pension scheme. So I got the immediate pension straight away. Uh, so that was okay. a, that was a great bonus. And that was part of the decision-making process. Also looking at starting a family. So I was going to be the plus one. I would follow Ingrid around. And I was then going to be daddy daycare looking after um, our daughter as she came along. And that's how it worked out. So it was really just, it was working out, working through the priorities about what we wanted. And in a certain way, just trying to be as logical and objective about it as possible. And then just going, okay, these are the options. These are the choices. What's best? And so it wasn't that I woke up any day and went, actually, I've, I've had enough of this. It was just with all of the facts and sort of details and thinking on the table, that was the right thing to do. I yeah. think the only other thing is I, I, after three years of doing all of the leadership and management and training at Cranwell, however good the intelligence world was, I preferred the leadership and management stuff and engaging more with developing people. And so if I'd left, if I'd signed on until 55, I would have been back to the intelligence world. And I didn't want that. So I jumped ship, um, studied for a year full-time to get a master's in psychology, and then went full-time daddy daycare. But ended up three and a half years for one, then two kids. Well, well, well done, well, congratulations. I was happy days. It was great fun. Yeah. And uh, we, we were out in Cyprus and doing a volunteer job, which was probably more challenging working at 16 Brigade. And that was running a, um, a toddler group twice a week for three hours of the day. Having <laughs> about, about 30 kids to send on you for a few well, hours. That, well, well, there's a lot of similarities there, actually, 30 kids. And uh, 16 hours. Allegedly, yes. Yeah, I can see that, especially with the Royal Engineers, uh, the, para the Paratroop Squadron. Yeah, I can see, definitely. So, uh, except there's no alcohol involved, at least I hope not, with the toddler group. Inside. Correct. No, you're right there. So, uh, so whereabouts was that in Dekelia? Uh, we were around. Uh, Syria. Oh, I can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Got you. Yeah. Um, now, so what year, so you stayed on, um, what year was that that you actually left and signed off? I, so I finished, yeah, so I, I stopped being paid at the start of 2012. And then, so I went back to where I had three and a half years away from paid work and went back um, to Ingrid and I then did a job swap. She was in the Air Force, as I said. She then wanted to leave around 2015, so she swapped. She went to doing the um, childcare bit, and I went back and got back into paid work. It was full-time reservist back at Cranwell working with the Air Cadet organisation. Oh. Um, so, yeah, that was three and a half years of um, uh, absolute great fun, yeah, looking after the kids. Oh, wow, fantastic. So... During that time, then, you built a social network and a business network, did you? Not so much the business. I still kept in touch with people from the military, people that I knew had left and stuff like that. Uh, but definitely the social network, yeah. And how important is that, having a good social network? 
for support? It, massive. Yeah, absolutely massive. It's, it's one of the things that you probably, being in the military, you take for granted. Um, you have it on your doorstep. You don't have to go searching for it, particularly if you're in the mess, things like that. And you go back to your the, the difference between being single-man rooms or four-man rooms. Yeah. Um, you, you, you get it straight away. Whether you think you want it or not at that time, but it's on tap. You've got that social network ready made for you. Um, there's so in my psychology study, there's a massive part I remember around individual resilience. Yeah. Or which is again huge within um, the military, but also now within the civilian world about how to build and maintain resilience. And one of the key factors is a social network that you, it will be there to support you. And I think that is absolutely critical. And it's something that potentially one of the greatest things that you can get with the military. Now, you're always going to get the horror stories about things that have gone wrong with people with banter and the like. You can't get away from that. And that will, in every walk of life, that will be an issue where you get people going rogue and things go bad. Mm. Um, I think, again, I'm, from my personal perspective, particularly working in Ireland, the banter was absolutely ruthless. Yeah. The important thing, and this this is absolutely critical for me. Everybody got it. There was there was no. It was just you got banter, and everyone had it. So there was no picking out. There was no picking on at all. It was just part of that social support for everyone. And that's something we really do underplay quite a lot, I think. Yeah. How to translate that into the civilian world, I think, is more of a challenge because you're not living in the four-man rooms. Yet you are able to engineer it and construct it and maintain it through now using enablers like social media. Use it for a positive. Just, yeah, quickly tap into somebody. How are you doing? What's happening? Yeah. Maybe do some open questions. And I'm going to go out on a limb here, just my observation of banter, as we call it, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure that a lot of it will be classed as PC. Uh, definitely not. Very, very little. Yeah, the thing is, though, that uh, I know that when it's said and given, it comes from a place of love, and it also comes from a place of constraint being constructive in what you say, even though some people are less PC than others. But at the yeah. end of the day, it's all about building a teamwork. And, I, and I'm not sure, because one of the things I'm going to come on to in a minute is about how it's how it's perceived in Civvy Street. I'm not sure that it can translate into Civvy life so easily. What do you think? It is, it is a challenge. Um, and I think part of it is purely down to the work you do mm. and i think within I'll, I'll, so I'm, I'm not talking public services like fire 
and policing where potentially your life is on the line, but I'm talking corporate. Yeah. Where the you won't be going and potentially working with somebody where you can die. Yeah. The life on the line stuff. And when you've got operations, then that is the situation you're in. And therefore black humor, um, very, very dark humor is a way of dealing with that. Mm. Um, drink is another um, standard operating model for the military on how things have been dealt with to release pressure. Mm. Again, that, that has caused a lot of problems for many people in the past. Yeah. Yet it's also, and again, it, it's, it, it has helped. And uh, I'll, I'll put my hand up and say booze and banter have helped me release pressure in the situation that I've been in. I've been fortunate that I've been, I've dealt with that and it's do it, leave. So I've not got into that cycle of sort of downward cycle. Mm, But when you're in those life-threatened situations within the military, that is, uh, that's an environment that I'm I'm not sure you can recreate that within the civilian world. So it is a big, big challenge. Um, So going and going out into um, areas and just eating, living, close to people so if you're going away from imagine say for a team uh building event don't go and live in a bloody hotel yeah. go and live in a communal area where yeah. you've got to live in bunk beds find out who snores find out who farts a lot <laughs> and have to get up the next day and deal with it that that's how you build a team because yeah. it's warts and all then and it's not yeah. just your eight nine till five how people operate in an office and put on a face mask. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, things like that can be fun. I, I, and I know, I know when, we, when you were talking about alcohol and banter, you're certainly not condoning it. it, it, it not and, so. I mean, but that's just the way it is. Cause I was talking to a mate of mine who was a sniper in, in, in the military, in, in, in infantry. And he spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland back back when we're in the 80s yeah and and a lot of the time when they've been on a tough patrol the sergeant has said right okay there's a bottle of whiskey go away come back monday morning now i'm not saying whether that was right or wrong all i'm saying is that was one way of dealing with it because you didn't have any 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 whiz bang coaching or counseling or hypnotherapy available back then. Um, and it was just uh, about getting on with it. So it's great that you brought that to 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 the fore and we, we talked about it. So what I'd like to look at now, because in the, in the military, we don't necessarily call people coaches or mentors. Using that label, even though it wouldn't be when you were in, yeah, you've 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 been coached or mentored, and you've also acted as a coach or mentor. So, how important do you think having a great coach or mentor, or coach and mentor even, plays? It, yeah, it, again, 
it's massively, massively important, both in the military and in civilian world. And again, it's the important bit about having a coach or a mentor is not the label. So you don't have, oh, I've got a coach or, oh, I don't have a coach. Or, yeah, I'm great because I've got X, Y, or Z as a mentor. It's actually, are you able to get the behaviors, the activities? So is there somebody that you can talk to who is going to question you on what you plan to do and to give you that that sort of, again, uh, probably a non-PC term, but a sanity check on what you're going to do? If you've got that and somebody's going to question you without giving you the answers, you've got a coach. And that's what people in the military have been good at because using things like mission command, you don't, and this is, again, more particularly Green Army rather than Air Force, Green Army much, much better at it for mission command and the like. But, right, you want to make sure that when these people go away, they're able to think for themselves and do the job. So by just telling them all the time, that doesn't work. So the mindset you get into is you question people. You are, you challenge them on things. So that's coaching. You don't get called a coach, but that's coaching. It's the behavior. Same with if you go to somebody you know is experienced and you just ask for that bit of advice. I've got this coming up and I'm thinking this, but what about that? What, what are you thinking about? What are your thoughts? And they'll offer, offer advice on their experience and what they've done, how that might work out. That's mentoring. So you don't have to have these people pigeonholed. But if you can get that activity going, and we do it naturally, it's just the same thing. Whenever project management was started up as a label, prior to project management actually existing, projects have always been done. It's new work that happens, and it gets looked after and then comes out at the end. Mm -hmm. We've been doing that for millennia, but we just haven't called it project management. Coaching and mentoring, it's got a much older sort of lineage back to the Greeks and the like. But it's still, it's an activity, it's a behavior. We don't need to have people to do it. It sometimes helps because it means they're more specialists or we're acknowledging their expertise in that area. But if you can ask questions or somebody can, you can sort of play something off to somebody and they'll ask you questions about it to challenge you. That's coaching. If somebody offers their experience from a place of experience rather than they're just sort of waffling, that, that's mentoring. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely critical to anyone that wants to develop and be better at whatever they're doing. And they're really, really important. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thank you for that. I Yeah, I I totally believe that coaches, coaching and mentoring are two totally different things. And, and the way you describe that totally meets with my belief as well and so coaching coach mentor or having one of each or people who fit that criteria whether they whether they're labeled as that is very important so you know when you and when did you remove yourself if that's right term from the military environment and then because i know you You've had some great roles now, and I know what you do now is fabulous up in the northern parts of the UK. So 
when did you when did you say right that's enough and i'm not sure whether it was just get up one morning or you went to a process again probably a process yeah. again knowing you and and so where are you now i've so i after after sort of coming back into work um went through various different roles um started with full-time reservist after that I did three years working on degree apprenticeships as a senior lecturer getting more into the theory of all of this stuff and why we do it and really trying to pull together the theory and practice and I learned huge amounts um of being able to allegedly teach leadership and management i don't think you can but you can set up an environment where people can learn about it so doing that within a sort of four-year program absolutely loved uh then a couple of other roles my last role was with police scotland as a leadership and talent manager and again process very much periods of self-reflection and an opportunity that you you need you need an opportunity and i think that's one of the things maybe we'll talk about that transitioning thing from military to civilian world and how how to do that for success um i i struggled to keep bosses is a nice way of putting it i struggled with sort of bosses that i had and after a quite a deep period of self reflection i came to this this point where I being a leader in the service of others means so much to me. Yeah. And I hold myself to a high standard. I don't always get it right, but I hold myself to a high standard. And therefore, if somebody's my boss, that's the least I expect. Yeah. And that wasn't always happening and so the only logical um, choice is to you either continue to go around do 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 and continue to have the problem or you change something yeah. and therefore changing to what I'm doing now being my own boss setting up my own company it's me to I then if I do if my boss i.e. me, if there's something wrong, I need to take myself out of the back and have a word with myself because <laughs> yeah. I've got it wrong. Um, so I think that was a big part of it. And so now, yeah, um, I've set up in Granton on Spay, looking at outdoor coaching and development, yeah. very much focused on that idea of trying to generate that knowledge of yourself so that you're able to lead yourself and then serve other people in that. And that can be one of the easiest and also one of the most difficult conversations to have, isn't it? The one with yourself. Because as you ask the question, you might know the answer and then all of a sudden you realise you don't know the answer. Uh, and then that's where... Oh, it's damn uncomfortable because you do know the answer and you know you've failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just down to you and nothing else. Exactly. So one of the things that I want to touch on, because um, someone gave me some feedback which and feedback is the food of champions on what they wanted me to include on a particular series of in this podcast and it's a thing I, and and you know i thought that's an interesting question 
And I hadn't realised until that was raised how it affected me. Because when I first left the military and looking back, having had this feedback from a good friend of mine, how my experience was held against me to some degree by the behaviour of my superiors when I went into the civilian role. Uh, what What is your experience in that? I, I suppose, is it a feeling of jealousy by them? Or they're not, oh, they might take my job? Or what, what experience have you had with that? Yeah, I've had that. Um, and I, it, it's funny, isn't it, where... There, again, there are a lot of assumptions made about individuals within the military, people with a military background, of whether they are going to be very un-PC or whether they're going to be very aggressive mm. or they're just going to get shit done. Yeah. Um, because in a way, that's that's how we have learned to operate. Yeah. And so it's just what we do. Mm. And so that people will be judging us on stereotypes that they have in their mind of what a military person will be generally military will mean army the air yeah. force and navy are separate to that yeah. um and it can be intimidating and i've i feel without yeah i, I feel that that's been a potential as well where people have seen me as a threat um and so it's trying to – it's difficult to navigate. Mm. It is. It is very difficult to navigate depending on what role you are. And you, you see across the networks through the military networks where people will transition through a number of roles where they're still looking for the same purpose that they had when they were in the military. Yeah. that connection with something bigger than what they're doing instead of just a paycheck. And you are. Um, yeah. And so trying to work out your, again, uh, you, each of us have very, even as senior leaders, we have almost no control over those people below us and around us. All we can actually control is our own selves. So if we can focus on our, being as good as we can be within our own sort of behaviours and our own attitudes and our own actions, we've got more of an opportunity to lead by example, to inspire through our own example. Yeah. And that is more powerful than just telling people what to do. Yeah. One of the things, while you've been speaking a lot, quite a few things have come up in, in my mind. One in particular, I, I don't know what, how you classify it, but well, I've got a word, excusitis, right? Because I know that excuses were not accepted, never in a million years, and we weren't going to listen to it, either the job's done or not. And yet in civilian environments, I just, I, I give them excusitis, not interested. What is it? Well, and, it and it seems like there's a whole dictionary of excuses sometimes that come to the fore, what experience have you had of that? Yeah, again, I'm, I'm with you on that. And you see it in different ways and different, depending on the culture of the organisation, it will manifest itself in different ways from 
it simply being acceptable that you don't do work and it just mm. doesn't get done and nobody challenges it. Yeah. Um, or there are staple statements on why something has happened. It, again, that the, the easy excuse both from sort of that personal, sorting out your personal feeling of self-worth and others is you can do the them and us. Yeah. I, it was not, it was another team, wasn't it? It was that other person, not part of our team. They let us down, yeah, and that's yeah, the yeah. reason it didn't get done. Instead of just going, yeah, didn't happen. All right, and this is where you take it away from the person to what went wrong instead of who went wrong. All right, what happened? Let's work through it. It moves away from blame culture to a learning culture, mm. and you start to focus on right. Let's just look at this stuff. Now, reading um, General Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams, he had a great way of sort of trying to get through this. And actually, it probably stopped it rather than was the name to stop it. Radical transparency, where everyone in the headquarters knew everything. There wasn't any compartmentalization. Yeah. The team calls with back to Washington and the like were on loudspeaker. So everyone knew stuff because then you can't bullshit. You can't hide. You just let's look at the facts. Let's not get territorial on it because as soon as you do, you're going to have blame because you're trying to make yourself look better in relation to somebody else. Yeah. And I remember a a good friend of mine who's been on previous podcasts, uh, Brigadier, Reside Brigadier John Thompson, he was doing a talk at a corporate event and he said, do you know, when you get it wrong, the only difference between you getting it wrong in the corporate world and us getting it wrong in the military is the amount of body bags. Yeah. And the, and the audience just went, because oh. that's it, isn't it? And that linking back to one of the earlier points around trying to establish a similar culture and a similar ethos, whatever you say, when that's on the line, it changes the dynamic. You can't get away from that, um, especially if they're your mates. Um, so that 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 does make there is there is a very very different um, anything that sort of life on the line to corporate world. There, there's a big, big difference about how much uh, routinely you will invest into that, both through thoughts and feelings. So, tell me a bit more about about your business now in uh, a lovely part of the world, Scotland. What what are you doing up there, and what's it? What's the aims and objectives of it, please? Yeah. It, so again, it, it comes through opportunity. Where doing all of the coaching and leadership and development setting up on my own i had this initial sort of block of thinking i've, I've lived up in the highlands of scotland granton on spay and kengorms national park um for close to six years now but i've always been in work so jobs paid work and then wanting to set up as sort of a coach and training development and like and i was thinking about okay how much time i'd need to spend away doing this stuff and then it was that realization. It was actually prompted a bit like a mentoring conversation of somebody saying, "Well, why don't you do stuff up there?" And it was almost, it was it was just one of those silly things that 
I should have thought of myself, but sometimes you just don't. And so we've got rivers, woods, hills all around us. So using the environment up here to set up those opportunities that, again, we took for granted in the military, that thing about eight adventure training, AT. And that's what I was describing to a mate of mine who's an ex-LE captain now with the Royal Artillery. And he said, uh, mate, what are you doing? It sounds like AT. And it is. Yeah, so, yeah. But what it is, is we're, again, for the non-military people, it's not. A th- it's nowhere near a thrashing. It's just getting out into the open, um, taking in the views, listening to the sound of the river going by or the wind going through the trees. And there's huge amounts of research showing that that changes our cognitive abilities and our capabilities for a positive in a positive way, and it gives us a different way of thinking. Our thought process, our decision making is more expansive. We're more yeah. open to new ideas and opportunities. So having the opportunity to do that and to try and harness the benefits of what we've all learned in the military to bring it to a wider audience and to try and make it very, very accessible to um, as many people as can come up. Yeah, that's the plan. So how would pe- how can people find out more about what you do? Uh, I've got a website. So yeah. my one, well, it's www.cdsoutdoors.co.uk. Uh, the tagline is know yourself, lead yourself, serve others. That's available right. um, as a website or on LinkedIn. Me, Tim Artis on LinkedIn, we can find you there. It tells you about the different programs um, and different ways that I'm looking at trying to harness both the operational learning that I've had through the three and, and years. You, and you've had a bit in furnace, haven't you? Really? <laughs> I've, 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 it, it's one of these things I've done more than most, but many have done more than I have. Well, it's one of those. Here's the thing as well, because I'm, I meant to bring this up earlier. Um, sometimes, like, because... As soon as you say where you've been, what you've done, right? I know the training that's gone in me. I know what you've had to do, what you've learned. As soon as you say intelligence, Cromwell, I I know, and it's the same as I know. If someone says, "Well, I was a sniper, or I was engineers, or I was Remy, or I was MP, or I was parachutes, I was commando," I just know. And the same for the navy, right? Civilians might not understand that. And that's why on LinkedIn, I think now that they're teaching soldiers, sailors and airmen to put the CVs into CV speak rather yeah, than... Definitely. I, I went on my field sergeant's course. I went on my bomb disposal officer's course. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. You know, as soon as I say that, you know what what I've learned. Yeah, yeah. same as I know what you've learned. So I've got, I mean, we've got a, a, a lot of mutual respect. So... When you, the reason I say you know what you're doing at your gaff, right? I, and, and you might say, oh, well, maybe, but I know you do. So, so, um, yeah, it's great what you're doing. And I know that people should get 
in touch, uh, whether it be corporate or or just to get away with the family or whatever. So what 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 is it? www cdsoutdoors.co.uk so the co- the company is called coaching and development simplified right um, v- very much looking at it is it's knowing that when when we talk about coaching and mentors they're different things hmm. coaching and development are very very different things but if you only have one or the other yeah you lose something yeah. and so I, i've again the, the very very i hate sort of blow my own, own trumpet and it's really sort of not what I like doing. It's what I'm damn good at. Asking yeah. awkward questions, seeing and observing things and yeah, asking those questions that people aren't necessarily willing to ask to their team members and just making observations around things that aren't said and then providing the support and guidance and training yeah. to make an action plan out of those sessions well thank you well you, you know football is a big game in the uk so i yeah. thought how can i come up with a f- football analogy to to s- identify the difference between a coach and a mentor I, and and what i i came up with it's recognized that alice ferguson best manager in football in the world right along um along with a few others a set um and then Kenny Dalglish, right? So best coach in the world. Kenny Dalglish, I believe, was he's a great coach, but he was also a great mentor. Because because Alex Ferguson couldn't play, he did play football, but he wasn't world class. But he was a world class coach. Kenny Dalglish was a world class coach and could play football like you wouldn't yeah. believe. So he fits into both. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think it's the. Yeah, and Pep Guardiola, I think, is similar yeah, in yeah. the sort of more Dalglish style, whereas yeah. you would have, say, Brendan Rogers, who was more um, Alex Ferguson yeah. sort of style. So, yeah, there's. Um, I think the, the important thing is knowing what you're getting. Mm. So if you're if you're asking somebody that, or you're asking for coaching advice or or coaching uh, um, discussions then know that it's coaching. If they start to tell you how to do things, then you're probably getting a bit of a sort of flashing red light above your head going, something's not quite right here because they're just trying to tell me what to do instead of actually let me find my my own way. Um, Whereas mentoring, you fully accept that. Yeah. And I suppose that's why guys who have been in the military are so resilient. Because here's the problem, guys. How are we going to get over it? How are we going to solve it? Go away yeah. and do it. Right. So, well, thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed this. I, I just want to, I just want to ask, I've got a couple of more areas I want to identify. How valuable, how valuable do you think, and, and we did touch on it before about, about yeah. bosses being intimidated by military, ex-military persons coming in and starting a job. How valuable do you think the skills are that you learn in the military and transferable to Sibby Street? You, it, the, the pro, I'll say that, yeah, uh, the things you can, you can learn within the military, you will not be able to learn within the civilian world. Mm. The bits that we've touched on around teamwork and ethos and that camaraderie, 
because of the situations you put in, you're very unlikely to get in a civilian world. So those are things, the loyalty and purpose that you can teach. It's very, very difficult. So there are huge amounts of transferable skills. The challenge, as you say, is being able to turn that military CV into the language of the civilian employer. Mm. Fortunately, particularly, as you say, Joe, on LinkedIn, there are a lot of great people out there now um, who are able to support and able to help people in that transition period. The Gendit Network, for example, is one of them. Yeah, great, great. So things like that. There's loads of people out there that would do things for free to support people because they've been through the process already and know the challenges that that are there. Um, the Again, part of it goes back to the stereotypes is you'll have people at one end of the spectrum go, didn't really do anything within mm. the military, whereas they've done loads of stuff. Yeah, I know. Then you get other people who go, yeah, top secret mail. I was, I was, on, the, uh, I was on the balcony at the Iranian embassy yeah. and things like that back in 81, but I can't talk about it. And you... Majority of people are somewhere in the middle, but you've got yeah, somebody yeah. who says they did nothing, or you get somebody who says so much gump yeah. that they give all military a bad yeah, yeah, name yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you just think they're a complete Walter Mitty. Yeah. Um, so it, I think it's um, I think being as objective as you can about what you've done. Speak to people who have been through it already and say. The networks are there, particularly on LinkedIn. Um, don't bullshit. Mm. Be honest. Be honest about you what you've done and seek advice and assistance on translating all of the great stuff that you have done because I bet you're unlikely to be putting it at the level that it actually is. Yeah. The same as when you ask, when you look, people look at how much you want to earn and what sort of you're willing to accept as an offer for sort of financial reward. Um, Quite a number of people will go low because they have that view of, I didn't really do a lot. Whereas actually you've you've done a lot. Yeah. Because you can command a better, a better reward compensation financially than often they do. Uh, So thank you for that feedback. So what's the one top tip you'd give to someone who's either thinking of leaving the military, has left the military, and maybe not sure what to do in the future. I just want a good tip to help them get even better. Put yourself in a position where you can play the long game. And what I mean by that is don't expect overnight success. Mm. You might get it, but it might... um, slight, Slight finger in the air plan that you can survive for two years before finding your perfect role or what you want to be doing. It might take longer, particularly if, you, if you're looking to set up your own business. I can't, the, the, the numbers, the percentages are massive for the number of businesses that fell within the first year. And that's not necessarily through the product that you have. It's not through your failings. It's the, Overnight success takes a lot of hard work and a lot of time investment. Yeah. I remember um, I'll go back um, 2012, so 11 years ago, 
and Kerry Jones, the lead singer of the Stereophonics, was yeah. they were they were awarded the Brit Awards for the best newcomer. And he said, Fucking oh, you know, hell, about time we got that. So they got best newcomer, but they've been doing this for ages, for years and years and mm-hmm. years. So it takes a lot of hard work to be an overnight success. Yeah. And so giving give yourself to plan for being able to work and operate for two years whilst you build yourself, whilst you get yourself in a position where it's going to sustain long term. Yeah, I, I totally agree on that. And I mean, that's why I set up the joeteams.com. Yeah. Because that is about just giving as much information as I can, because I love helping people set up business. And it's a, it can be a minefield. Uh, and and having, having a view of the long game, because yeah, I, I get it. You might you might set up the next online thing that goes viral, and you're an overnight millionaire. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> just work on the basis that the chances of that happening are probably not that good. Awesome. Yeah. So so yeah, it is about the long game. Well, listen, uh, Tim. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Thanks, Joe. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, thank you so much. Uh, for your conversation and yeah well we'll keep into it definitely thank you and have a brilliant day thanks joe take care cheers